This podcast is produced by CDSS, the Country Dance and Song Society. CDSS provides programs and resources like this podcast that support people in building and sustaining vibrant communities through participatory dance, music, and song. Want to support this podcast and our other work? Visit cdss.org to donate or become a member today. One and a half around. Now below one couple and four with six. Look around to the right when you balance. Look around to your right and you balance once again. Swing your partner. Hey there, I'm Mary Wesley, and this is From the Mic, a podcast about North American social dance calling. Nicely done. Through conversations with callers across the continent, we'll explore the world of square, contra, and community dance callers. Why do they do it? How did they learn? What's their role on stage and off in shaping our dance communities? What can they tell us about the corner of the dance world that they know and love the best? Each episode, we'll talk to a different caller, but they all have something in common, a spark, a desire to lead, to share joy, to invite movement, to stand in that special place between the band and a room full of dancers or people who don't yet know that they're dancers. And from the mic, say, find a partner. Let's dance. Hello, friends. Welcome back to From the Mic. Today, we're traveling to Washington for a chat with dance caller, composer, organizer, and devotee, Penn Fix. Penn learned to dance in the Boston area and grew to love it in the Monadnock Valley of New Hampshire. After three years of dancing five nights a week, he moved back to his native home in Spokane, Washington. There, he says, he had no choice but to become a caller and help build the dance community he wanted to be part of. In the spring of 1980, he organized the first contradance series in the area and began calling that August. That series continues today, along with a Wednesday contradance he began in 1988. With his wife, Deborah Schultz, Penn co-founded the Lady of the Lake Music and Dance Camps on Kerdelen Lake in Idaho. He served on the boards of the Washington State Folklife Council and the American Folklife Center. After serving on the board of Spokane Folklore Society 40 years ago, he's returned to the board where he's currently secretary. Penn is also a dance composer and historian. In 1991, he published a book called Contradancing in the Northwest, and also has 30-plus years of unpublished compositions. We covered so much in our interview. Here's Penn. Penn Fix, welcome to From the Mic. Well, thank you very much. I'm really looking forward to visiting with you. I am too. And uh, we were talking earlier that we've had a few missed connections. We've been in roughly the same place a few times, but didn't really get to hang out or have a chat. So it's nice that uh, that we're sitting down to do that now. And where are you speaking to us from today? Uh, I've been living in Spokane for 
Well, since 1980, I was born and raised in Spokane, and then I went off to college and then found myself teaching in a public alternative high school in Newton, Massachusetts in 1974. Uh, it was called Murray Road School, and it was an annex of Newton North High School. So I was there for five years and then moved back to Spokane late fall of 1979 and have been here ever since. Wonderful. And when and how did you start dancing? Well, that's a great question because uh, uh, I I feel pretty strongly, and I think I I, I will reference things uh, from what Collars has said, and part of it's just my story. But uh, uh, I think uh, Ralph Page once said that in order for you to be become a, a caller, you should dance maybe five years or something like that. But I I truly feel that. Uh, uh, my dancing experience has really influenced uh, how I call and what I call. And uh, I had never, ever really danced before in my life until I fell into contra dancing. And it wasn't unlike anybody else's story. And that's the joy of this, this whole trip. Uh, but uh, when I was teaching at Murray Road, one of the things we did was uh, we played around with units of time. And so we would study one thing for a week and so i took a bunch of students out to uh sturbridge village for a week and we spent the, the whole time there they had a, a dormitory that we could stay at and uh, part of the day the students were in in archives and part of the time they were dressed in costume working in the uh, living history museum farm and then in the evening the staff would take us through certain things they had a big uh new education department building and we did dancing and it was dancing from the you know, 1790s to 1820 and uh, the person that led it was the person in charge of dancing her name was lila farrar and her sister edith is a good friend of ours and she lives here in the west and sort of followed a bunch of people out here and she's a musician as well but uh so i i Danced there in June, just one dance. And then about two months later, I was in the White Mountains and some friends and I ran into each other and they took me to a dance in Tamworth, New Hampshire. And I've been told that it was probably a Dudley Lofman dance. I don't remember. The only thing I remember is everyone was moving around so fast and I just was totally lost. I remember people dancing without shoes. And I remember I was kind of the last person to leave, having just this great time. And then my next memory is that, uh, and I probably got it through Lila, though I could be wrong. Um, I decided the way to really learn how to dance was to go to a weekend. So uh, CDSS uh, Boston Center was, was sponsoring a weekend at, in the White Mountains in Cardigan Lodge. And it was uh, September 1977. And uh, the instructor, instructors were George Fogg and Vivian Winston. And so my first real experience with contra dancing was actually with uh, English country dancing. And it was basically an in, in English country dance uh, weekend. And I'm forever grateful for that, rather than most people just get thrown right into a contra dance. But I learned some really basic important things that uh, I probably wouldn't have if I had gone straight into contra dancing. And that was um, the element of giving weight 
And most of us, when we think of that, we think of, and we teach it in, in the context of a swing. But in English country dancing, at least the way I was taught, there are other, other moves that have opportunities of giving weight. And when you do that, it really smooths out everything. So for example, when I call a dance, oftentimes I will teach people how to circle because more often than not, they don't circle in a way that to allows them to move smoothly and also move around in time. Um, and if you give weight in a circle, it actually allows you to do that. Uh, the other two things was the idea of dancing as a group and dancing with people rather than just your partner. And so obviously the forward and back is the most obvious thing in contra dancing, but there are a whole bunch of other kind of moves that at least at the time George Fogg was teaching that you you look and be aware of, of the people around you and you move together. And there was a real power in that and a real um, fun nature to doing that. And then the final thing obviously was the connection with uh, moving and music. And of course the music in, in English country is so melodic and so obvious. Uh, it was much easier to follow the moves and understand the, how the moves related to the music. But as importantly, uh, with English country, you never want to be caught sort of standing still. And so you learn to use the music and move your feet. So like in a hay or something, you didn't, you didn't dance to a spot. You, you finally uh, arrived at that spot, but you had this time. And what did you do to move? to the music, so you slow down and stuff. So those are the takeaways I learned from uh, dancing English country. And uh, I'm forever grateful that that's what I, I did. And then, of course, there probably were posters and stuff at that weekend. And so I fell into contra dancing and like everybody else, I, I it was just crazy. It was a crazy time. I danced five nights a week. I danced on... Uh, Monday at, at Conquer with Yankee Ingenuity and Tony Parks. And, and then Tuesday was Brimmer and May with Ted Snell and, and Tony Salatan. And then Thursday was Todd Whittemore in Cambridge, usually with Rodney and Randy Miller. And then there was always something going on in the Scout House. But what I, and, and subsequently I got to dance with all, all the people, you know, all the, the major callers from that time period. But the thing that I really loved was uh, I fell into dancing in New Hampshire in the Monadnock Valley. Uh, it was taking Highway 3 to 101 and then going to small communities. My favorite was Francistown, uh, which is this lovely, lovely town hall with windows on both sides and a big stove going and you park your car and the doors are open and the lights coming out and the music's coming out. And it was just that classic thing. And Alan Block lived in Francistown. So a lot of times he was playing. And of course, Jack Perrin was, was calling. So uh, I love dancing there and I love the sense of community and, and sort of, it is such a contrast to the urban dances at Scout House and Brimmer and May where you'd have hundreds of people dancing and these smaller dances at, 20 or 30. Uh, Dublin was another great place to dance to. So um, so that's that's how I learned to dance and just totally fell head over heels with it. 
amazing. You're you're just describing a whole landscape, you know, physical and and also experiential. Yeah, I don't know if you want to share any more about some of those, you know, dance leaders, callers, or or musicians, or people who stood out to you. I mean, part of this podcast is taking a snap snapshot of dance calling now, but it's also hearing, you know, the the living memory of you know our our history and our dance community, and sure. you you got to be active and, and you know time it at the the right time in your life when you just had time and the space and the sort of appetite to to just yeah. eat all that up so i just would love to to stay in that realm a little bit more sure. uh you know it, it was a foundational moment for contra dancing the 19 late 70s into the early 80s you know a lot of what we're doing today was built on on that foundation, there was a real transition going on during that time period. And and we can certainly talk about that in the context of how people changed in terms of dancing, how uh, composition changed, how the music changed, how things were being played. But uh, uh, unlike some people who sort of fell into calling, my I, I was very intentional uh, because I knew I was returning to Spokane to help run our family business, which is, we've closed it now, but it was 132 years old. It was the oldest family-owned jewelry store in the Northwest. It was started by my great-grandfather. So being a history teacher, you can understand that I, I shared the appreciation and sometimes the burden of that knowledge and saying, well, the teaching, the, the program that I worked at was closed and so it's a good time to try try this. But having said that, I knew that going to Spokane, there would be absolutely no contra dancing. So I was very intentional in, in sort of thinking that I needed to learn how to call and I needed to organize dances if anything was going to happen. So and the difference today, I think today there's a lot more opportunities to learn how to call from going to weekends and workshops and having mentors and lots of people that are willing to to help, which is really great. And CDSS has been great in that way. And all the organizations associated with the communities have done that too. But there really was a vacuum. And so what I did was I I taped everything for about two years before I left. And then I listened to tapes. And the one book that I found, because again, there wasn't much there, was uh, Don Armstrong's book on Contras and how to do it. So I started listening that way. And then the other thing is, is in terms of repertoire, that today, of course, you can just go online and do anything. You can see YouTubes of stuff, but Back then, that was not the way. There was a few publications, but not very many that had dances. And so subsequently, I was always carrying a little notebook and writing frantically to dances down and that sort of thing. Um, so I wasn't taught directly, but I certainly paid attention to the callers. And so this circles back to you know, your original question in that uh, uh, all these callers were just you know, very impactful for me, not only as a dancer, but as my future as a caller. And, you know, Tony Parks was one that really stood out. And um, Tony is a real technician. Uh, 
he, I guess, <laughs> Tony always gave you a good dance. It was never a great dance, but it was always a good dance because he was so intent on, on first the ability to teach, but also in terms of how to call. And so I listened to him on my tapes and it became very apparent what he would do is that he would say, you know, in this case, I, I apologize for doing ladies chain, but he might say all the ladies chain across. And then two times after that, he would just say ladies chain. And then the next time he would say chain and he would do that all the time. And so I really learned uh, that mechanism of calling that what you want to do is use words, multiple words, but not continue to use those multiple words and know where to call. And then he would drop out certain areas. So he was great that way. Um, Duke Miller, uh, I danced to, and Duke was amazing. When I, when I saw him, he could barely walk and he was sitting in a chair and he was in um, Western Mass, and he was a school teacher in New York and would come up in summer. And he did this one weekly dance for 30 years. And what I learned from him was that you could project enthusiasm for calling and for the dance without having to move around at all. You know, you would think, God, this guy's up there just you know when you look at him he's just sitting there but he used his voice he used to say because he did lots of uh, singing calls he say anybody can sing in b flat so uh he was great and then of course uh bob mcquillan always played with him and then occasionally he would rope rodney miller into playing too um the thing that that you learned from duke was that familiarity of dances were things that people wanted so more often than not, he had the same program every week. He might throw in one different dance or something like that. And for me as a caller, I, I, I realized because I had started a weekly dance in Spokane in 1988, and I was calling every week 35 weeks in a row or something that I didn't have to have a new, new dance thing every week. I learned that people actually like certain dances and they look forward to it. Um, the uh, another one, Ted Sonella, of course, was great. And his death really left a vacuum in the contra dance community that was never filled because you had Ralph Page and he was sort of the, the, the guy. And then when Ralph died, then it was Ted. And then Ted died too damn early, you know, and there was it's just there wasn't enough time. And maybe the world changed enough for the next person to step in. But Ted, I learned generosity. You know, he was he was very generous. He wrote a lot of his own dances, but he didn't necessarily only call his own dances. He called others people's dances and and certainly supported his community. And people were always callers were always sending him dances to review and he would give feedback and that kind of thing. But he too had huge enthusiasm when he was calling. You you knew he loved the dance and stuff. Um Jack Perrin was another one. Jack uh, uh, lives in New Hampshire, and he he was calling most of the dances in the Monadnock Valley. And Jack was just this, and still is a very singular person, and uh, fairly 
un unenthusiastic, but happy the call in a way. So I used to call him Happy Jack. <laughs> but uh, uh, he had a great repertoire, uh, but he was so nonchalant. He had this big book and he would sit there uh, right next to a speaker and you know, with his book and he'd flip through it. And at times he'd just say to people, here, pick out something and I'll call it. And then someone broke into his car and stole that book and he never called again. And it was just oh such a loss. Oh my gosh. I know, it was such a loss, you know, because I had great memories of Jack. And what I loved about those smaller dances was that you just had a piano player and a fiddler, you know, like Harvey Toman. And I can't remember who he was playing with, but in Harrisville, which was the precursor to, to Nelson, it was just a lovely place to dance. And it was just him. And then Alan Block and a, a piano player or somebody would be just great too. So um, another person that I remember was my good friend, Todd Whittemore, who was sort of the, the young person of the group. I think Jack was fairly young too, but uh, uh, Todd was certainly the next generation. And He's he's certainly embraced the tradition. Uh, he had grown up dancing with Duke Miller and you know, out in uh, Western Mass and stuff. So by the time I uh, got in contact with Todd, he was calling a regular dance on on Thursdays in Cambridge, often with uh, Rodney and Randy. And those that was sort of the highlight of my dancing in Boston. Always was just being able to dance with Todd and he was always coming up with new dances and, and that kind of thing. And when I started writing dances, I would send them to him. And then he was the one that was sort of responsible for sort of making me become, as my wife called a very mini celebrity uh, at the time. Um, there were other dances too, like Roaring Jelly had a dance in Lincoln. And so we would go out there and dance. And then I actually, 2019 came back for various reasons to New England and actually got to dance to them. So that was fun. That was, I think they were dancing in Lexington uh, this last time in 2019. Um, you know, those are kind of people that uh, were out there calling. And like I said, it was a grand time to dance. I mean, five nights a week, what, what more can you ask for? Amazing, yes. Yeah. And, and so what were some of the changes that you were kind of in the midst of or, or that maybe now you can look back on? Well, let's see, where do you start? They were, they were all interrelated because they all occurred at the same time. I mean, I, uh, if I had my life to live again, I probably would become a folklorist. Uh, and I certainly was very proud of the fact and embraced the idea that contra dancing is part of the folk process, that it, at, at the time, English country, and, I, and I've danced some English country just recently and realized, boy, this stuff has changed so much. But back then, it was sort of, you know, the Playford stuff, and that was it. And so it was presented in my mind as something that was stuck in a certain time. And I always felt very proud of the fact that contra dancing sort of moved along. And, and certainly, clearly, looking back now, it's it was doing that as I began to dance in 1977. So, so um, moved along in terms of kind of shifting and changing? Yes. You know, for example, let's just start with dancing. The dancing moved from mostly, I would say, 
at least half the dances in 1977 were basically quite a few were proper dances, meaning they, you were not crossed over. Almost all, all the dances were asymmetrical, whereas even if you were crossed over, the active couple was the one doing something um, on that. So I remember one dance I was listening to it just uh, a while ago on my tape. Tony Parks called this the final dance of the evening, and it was a proper dance in which no one swang. And that was the final dance of the evening. And the crowd went crazy. You know, it was just like, whoa. But, but, but what changed was that drive as more and more people wanted to dance, they had less and less, you know, um, patience for standing and waiting until they got to the top of the line to do that. The callers used to be, we were told, well, because of situations like that, you really should call, you know, all the way up and halfway down the line. And unfortunately, I, I told that to too many people here in, in some places, they continue to do that, even though dances are very symmetrical, and it's not necessary. But that was the big change was that dances became more symmetrical. And there were two things that did it. The circle left three quarters and the Beckett formations. And those occurred pretty much you know, the circle left three quarters obviously was a little earlier, you know, starting to happen in the late 70s and definitely into the early 80s. But the Beckett formation, uh, Jack Perrin used to call uh, the Beckett reel uh, all the time on that. And it never caught on in terms of, you know, it was always sort of a, a weird dance. Uh, but the, the, the formation itself basically allowed everyone to swing their partner at the same time. And that's what drove the changing of the dances. Uh, and at the same time, people started, callers started to write their own dances. And that was relatively new. I mean, that was happening, but it, you know, today it's, it's all the time. But back then we, we did a lot of traditional dances, not only the Chestnuts, but a bunch of others that, you know, in Ricky Holden's book, written in the 1950s, there's a bunch of dances there that were used and, and that kind of thing. So the dancing um, really started to change so that you ended up dancing with your partner, everybody did, that was a major thing. And that continues to today. So um, a move like active couple down the center with your partner, turn around, come back and cast off. No one knows how to do that. If you want to do a hard dance, that's what you do. <laughs> that's the irony <laughs> of the thing. And uh, uh, so what happened then too was uh, the other thing that that then evolved as, and, and I'm speaking as a, uh, not only as a caller, but as a composer, because as you know, I, I started writing dances. My first dance was in 1981. Um, but the... The other thing that changed besides everyone being able to swing their partner at the same time was what they call flow. And there is there is one major thing as me as a composer thought of was a dance that Ted Sonella wrote in 1979 called Scout House Reel. And uh, it basically had a ladies excuse me for using ladies as a both Robin, but a chain into the Robins doing then a do-si-do once and a half. 
that was revolutionary. It doesn't sound like it anymore. And then they would swing your neighbor or, or something, as I remember, a partner. Um, but that idea of flow. And then the other one came from a square dance um, world. There was a guy named Lonnie McQuaid out of Chicago. And in 1980, he wrote a dance called Joy. And Joy has uh, a a right-hand star, which is the right hands physically, into a chain, into a hay. And so that whole thing was revolutionary, that chain into a hay. And all of a sudden, people started wanting to do that kind of flow on that. And then the other thing that started to happen, too, uh, and this is all happening slowly during the 80s, for sure, but by the early 90s, it really occurred, was that composers then started wanting to help people move from one move to the other. Uh, reflecting back on my English country days, but particularly, you know, the early contra dances we did, they were they were very structured. And if if you wanted to connect them, you physically had to be aware that, you know, this is a chain, and then we're doing a right and left through, and then we're doing a star. It, and, and there were little things that you were taught because some of these moves actually moved you faster across the set than you wanted to. And again, there's little things I used to teach, like a little backup step to wait for the music as opposed to going into, like in Lady Walpole's Rail, there's a thing where you do a chain and then go into uh, a right and left through, and then you have to back step a little bit and then go into the um, uh, going back across the set. Uh, so composers started wanting to connect everything so that people didn't have to think about that, meaning they were just, you would move into the chain, into the hay, into this, into that. And then even today, it's getting to the point where they're taking moves that are four count moves, half now, two count moves, all this to fill that space of time. As, as a result, people dance differently than they did back then. So what I'm talking about is the dances, you know, changed, but then the dancers changed too and how they danced as well. So um, the, the dancers move differently and they don't and at their worst, sometimes I'll 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 complain to people. <clears throat> I can get away with this because I've been calling for 40 years, but I'll say to people, you know, you're just not really dancing to the music. You're just sort of moving through everything. And I say, but it's not your fault. It's my fault. And other composers for writing these dances the way they are. And, and they just flow so nicely that you sort of get lost in it. You forget where you are in terms of the music and you know. The better dancers know when to stop, but a lot of people don't when to stop the swing and then move into something else. And so um, back in 1990, I, I I started Lady of the Lake in part because of my experience with Cardigan Lodge and thinking this is the way our community will really learn how to dance is if we go out on the Coraline Lake and, and spend a weekend dancing. That was in 1981. But uh, um so what happened is in 1990, I was at Lake, and I usually didn't program myself to be a caller, but I did because it was our 10th 
anniversary. And so I started making points about how this has changed. And I basically uh, got a little carried away and claimed that this lacked structural integrity, these dances anymore. And so people started wearing buttons that said integrity on that. But, uh, uh, and, and I'm not here to claim this is that we need to return to this. It's just an observation that this is how it's changed. And music has changed along with it. So the way the music is played, uh, and I, I've been thinking a lot about Bob McQuillan because it's, Leo Lake was a really integral part of his life. He came to our, our camps probably 15, 20 times in his lifetime. And uh, uh, really appreciate, you know, what he did for our our community, meaning not Leo Lake, but our entire community. and. He certainly was an example of someone who wrote his own material, his own dance, his own dance tunes. And that serves as an example for others to do that. And today, I bet most uh, most people are playing tunes that were written in the last 50 years. Whereas when I first started the dance, there are very few dances that were dance tunes that were were new and being written. And so they were relying on Irish tunes and some of the other stuff and traditional New England chestnuts. Um, these people started to write tunes, but then they started to write tunes in relationship to how people were dancing and playing them. So the, the, there was no necessarily phrasing. There used to be one way you could really distinguish like an old time band versus a New England band was that the New England band really emphasized the phrasing so that dancers would know, okay, part B is is starting or, you know, have whatever. And, and the tunes were very melodic and there was a difference between an A part and a B part. Um, and all that changed uh, in the sense that and it reflected sort of what was going on, on the floor too. So you have all this flowy stuff going on and you have the the... Uh, musicians playing differently too that's you know more emphasis on rhythm and more emphasis on really pushing through and on and on and on so uh, going back to where uh, what i originally said is that the the, the dancers change the way they dance the dances change and the music dance changed as well and, and it still has evolved you know we i just played with this great band called countercurrent who are two young people and they really have, in my feeling, have embraced some of the traditional stuff in a way that they interpret it contemporarily, but it, it, it feels, you know, like it has real connections with the past too. So very excited about that. So I've talked a lot, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's great. It's it's super interesting. And, and you know, just to hear about that butterfly effect, just going around and and everybody everybody influencing everybody else in in different ways balance swing mcclellan tunes actors down the hall two by two turn along that's what you do cast off Onto corners, right to your partner, left across. Right turn, three quarters, face up. Actors, balance, sway. 
Face the next, you bounce below. Sweet. Active couples go two by two. Turn along, that's what you do. Pass off the same old two. Caught the corners, here they do. From the top, you balance. Swing. And I wonder from your first person perspective, as as what I'm hearing is you were you were among the young people who were kind of getting excited and, and pushing forward some of those changes, seeing, oh, it's actually great to be able to to be active all the way through a dance. Yeah. And what did you witness as that change was gaining momentum and you were seeing some older people who were, you know, had a longer view and, and this felt new and disorienting, you know, what, what were some of the, the reactions that you witnessed and what was your kind of position on it all? That's a great question. I don't think I, I realized it. I mean, it was such a momentous sort of thing. We're so caught up into it that we just were doing it. And the people that the older people chose to participate and they just were right there. You know, I don't know if he's a great example or not, but a good friend was Ernie Spence. And Ernie was this gentlemanly dancer who probably wasn't as old as we thought he was but we're the generation not to trust anybody under over the age of 40 so anybody older than that we're like he must be really old but he danced his whole life um, in that context of all the young people and stuff and whatever was going on uh, I have a very distinct memory and it has always haunted me in a way was that Todd took me to a, a Ralph Page dance um, and it was on a second floor somewhere and in it and we went in and it just felt like a dark room is during the day so uh, the windows you know the light was coming through the windows and Ralph was there with a phonograph album record player and there were about eight couples and they were all my age now <laughs> And they were dancing and they were doing all Ralph's dances and stuff. And so uh, I always thought, I don't want to do that. I don't want to be ever in that position. So um, uh, so I, I, I don't know if I can really answer your question. Obviously, I think it's, it's easier to talk about it now in the context of me being an old person uh, in that as opposed to being a young person and and, and aware of that. The, part of the issue too is that I left uh, New England um, October 1979. And while I came back every year for the next five years and danced and called and did all kinds of stuff, I really, you know, left that whole thing. And uh, going to Spokane was such a different experience because. Um, no one had ever danced countries. Uh, the difference between the Northwest and New England was, however, that there were organizations that, that arose, and they called them folklore societies, that uh, sponsored primarily 
concerts. And this was in the heyday of the back to the land movement and and the roots and stuff. So young people were really interested in in both old time music and Irish music in the Northwest. And so there were folklore societies, Spokane Folklore Society was established in 1977. There was the Corvallis one, uh, Portland, Seattle, all over the place. And they sponsored concerts and they had newsletters and they had this, this infrastructure. And Sandy Bradley then started calling dances approximately 1974, 75. So then she was calling mostly square dances, but, but as contras started to filter in, she started adding some contras to her repertoire as well. But she came to Spokane about five times between 1977 and 80. Uh, so when I went to Spokane, the there was the Spokane Folklore Society. They had a newsletter. I, I, I decided I was going to find a dance hall and start calling contra dances, knowing at least that there was some help there. Uh, that I didn't have to do all the work. And I went to a concert that, um, oh, I've forgotten his name now, was there. And he was also a caller. So he did a square dance and a concert at the same time. And I met Bob Childs there. And Bob Childs was in Spokane because of it was a fairly unique thing. There was a, in the community colleges, a string repair instrument uh, program, a two-year program taught by a guy named Anton Smith. And Anton learned to make violins in Europe. And so he really wanted to have that kind of a, a, a gig going on rather than just helping people repair violins and stuff. But Bob came to learn how to make violins with him. And uh, he was there for a full year and then Anton decided he didn't want to keep doing that. So he moved to Oregon and Bob followed him. But I met Bob Childs in uh, November uh, or December, I guess it is, and uh, of 1979, and he was a caller and a fiddler, and so I immediately grabbed onto him, thinking, thank God I don't have to call, and we started dances, a regular dance series um, in January. We did a second Saturday contra dance, and then a fourth Saturday square dance, and uh, that was headed up by a guy named Wild Bill Reagan, who called, and then the fiddler there was Jeff Seitz. So we had a string band. Uh, Jeff went on to win Gaelics and do all kinds of stuff. Lives in Missouri now where he was born. And then the uh, the house band for the country dance was a, an Irish band called Irish Jubilee. So Bob really helped them learn kind of how to play um, country dance music. Uh, because usually in, in the Northwest, you either had old time band or else you had a uh, an Irish band. There was never a piano player at all. Um, so you had to learn to live with that. But at least at least with the Irish stuff, you usually didn't have a hammer dulcimer, which drove me crazy because that really kind of you couldn't hear any phrasing with a hammer dulcimer. But the Bob left uh, after about six months and then I had the the call. But the, where I'm going with this is nobody had ever danced contras before. Nobody. And so if you said chain, everyone would look at you like, what the heck is that? So I learned how to teach 
dances really had to learn. Whereas the hard thing for callers today, I think for most of them is that they never really have the opportunity to really teach because it, most of the people know how to dance. And they, even when you try to break it down and say, well, let me teach this, half the people are doing it anyhow. So it's really hard to learn. So I was really grateful that my experience coming to Spokane was that I, and I was a teacher and I was a basketball coach. So I knew how to break things down. Uh, so all that played into it, but I really learned how to teach moves. And one of my teaching things too, was that, you know, um, you had to learn how to, to teach it in different ways. Cause not everyone, not everyone learns the same way. So, uh, uh, that was it. And then Bob Childs, I mentioned, was amazing because of the repertoire he had. He came while he was not born and raised in, in Maine. He lived in Maine long enough and really got caught up into that whole community world of dance and music there and ended up having great friends, Smokey McKean and, and uh, some others. Uh, and he had this really simple repertoire because if you remember i was collecting all these dances but there were dances that were being done danced by contra dancers and most of them were not appropriate for the 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 people here in spokane at the time and so bob had these community kind of dances i use today when i go into one night stands and family dances and and that kind of thing they're mostly reels. More often than not, he wouldn't even teach a contra dance in an evening. He would use reels and squares and circles and, and stuff. So um, I was really grateful for him to be there, A, because I didn't have to jump in and start learning. But then when I did, I had the correct repertoire uh, to do it. So, so you've really had quite a significant hand in shaping the dance community that you that you wanted to see and wanted to be a part of so absolutely yeah you want to fill that out a little bit more so after those early well, days of yeah i mean starting uh, from scratch well the the amazing thing i did this and i it's so funny i was like how did i do all this stuff because i was working full-time in our family business at the same time uh and I didn't meet my wife until 1985. So from 1980 to 1984, I was just mostly dedicated to, to doing stuff. And so Spokane is a real hub of the inland Northwest. And so we drew, when we started doing our dances, started drawing from people from outside the area. And they would talk to me and say, hey, we'd like to do dancing in our community. So I started... Uh, dances in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, which is about 30 miles away. Then I started dance in Sandpoint, which is about a two-hour drive northeast of, of Spokane. And I did one in Priest River, uh, which is directly north, about the same distance. And then Colville, same way. I, I have recently written articles about all of them because most of them were filled with back-to-landers kind of people. And so uh, Colville was mostly uh, commune folks and, and Priest River where people live in literally in the woods and stuff. Um, I also helped, uh, though I didn't start it, uh, a dance in Moscow, Idaho, actually Pullman. It came out of some uh, international folk dance people who were doing stuff there. 
And then I would go on a regular basis to uh, Seattle, probably about every four to six weeks to call it a place called the G-Note Tavern. And uh, that's uh, they had dances every uh, Thursday there. And uh, um, when I first started, people would come up and say, you know, this is okay, but when are you going to call a square dance? So it was still very oriented towards squares. And I was kind of... Uh, kind of one of the few full-time contra dancers are perceived that way. Um, but I would do, uh, in those first four years, I did about 60 dances a year, and I put about 10,000 miles on my car each year. Uh, yep. And the course, you know, five and $10 and that kind of thing. But uh, I always was able to write it off because I had a real, another job. So I just kept track of all my mileage and everything. And that kind of thing. And I also had opportunity to go back east and call and stuff like that too. Mm-hmm. Why was it important to you to do this? You know, that's so amazing. And and I look at it too, because like uh I got frustrated. Yeah, you know, you know uh, one of the things I, I realized is that I was a dancer who called until I became a caller who danced. And so I was still in that realm of a, a dancer who calls and was frustrated that, that people weren't learning fast enough for me. So I could call these great dances that I learned from backies. And so uh, one of the reasons for Lady of the Lake came out of that sort of motivation that, uh, um, I had, I mentioned Jeff Seitz and his string band, but uh, he had a uh, a woman named Marsha who was a banjo player. And incidentally, all the string bands had women banjo players. I don't know why, but uh, back then, but she lived in a little town called Harrison on the east side of, of Coeur d'Alene Lake. And there was a camp that she recommended, which we've been using ever since called Ensid Sen. Um, but the I just thought of my experience at cardigan lodge and thought this is the way we do it is we get our community out to the lake and and we'll be there for a weekend and by the end we'll all be dancing better and so that was sort of my my push and then in 1988 um probably for the same reason i started a weekly dance in spokane which is on wednesdays which continues to this day uh, as does our weekend dance. And that was the same reason was that here's an opportunity for people to really learn how to dance because they had more than once a month to do it because oftentimes they might miss a month. So then all of a sudden it's two months. So um, and I guess it, it got through, the, that's what motivated me was that I wanted our community to dance and I love dancing. And for me, the, and I, I, never quit especially during that time period recording myself and the dances I went to because I love the music I absolutely love the music and I still love the music so for me uh, uh, that was the other part of it is I really began to embrace the whole music scene and loved the playing of the music too so do you play as well no I don't I bought a bow once. <laughs> to start, I a, hey. <laughs> I, I bought a concertina once, but I I have great respect for musicians. 
on that. <laughs> I remembered too that there's a, a fellow named Roger Muat who was classically trained uh, fiddler. And so he used to play some of our dances here in Spokane. And I, I just was always amazed at these, these fiddlers who could remember all these tunes. Roger was classically trained, so I had to feed him music all the time. And then he would start playing a tune and all of a sudden the second, the second part became really familiar. And I'd look at him and say, universal B part, right? Because he'd forget the second part. <laughs> it just made me feel like, you know, that's, these musicians are amazing that remember all this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Is calling kind of your way to be, be yeah, on the inside? I do. And I always ask permission and apologize profusely. I do play to spoons on occasion. Nice. Some, some bands put up with it. I know <laughs> I played with uh, Jack and Arvid, uh, Jack Lindbergh and Arvid Lundin for years. Um, they were sort of the house band for the, uh, the weekly dances. And Jack once gave me a present of two spoons that had uh, pads on them so you couldn't hear anything. You tried to play them. So. <laughs> <laughs> the subtle thing. I said, okay, I get it. <laughs> but does that just come from from a desire to to participate in that way, participate yes. musically? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And I've had some very high kind of moments playing the spoons with with bands that really like it and stuff and feel like I connect with that. But uh, the other way that that uh, uh, dances have changed, too, is that dances have become more intricate. So callers oftentimes have to call more all the time. And so then the dancers never understand that maybe their responsibility is to learn the dance. And in part, some of them are so complicated, you can't remember anyhow. So I, I'm one that wants to get out of the way of the music pretty quickly. And so people sometimes get upset when I quit calling. But I also feel like I don't usually call very uh, complicated dances and and if I do then I'll continue the call but I I sort of feel like it's the callers or the dancers responsibility to learn to dance and if you do that then you have the joy as I do of dancing to the music rather than to the caller on that so uh, that is another great joy is just to be dancing and and being carried by this wonderful music absolutely what are some of your other goals as a caller? You're talking about trying to get out of the way of the music. You know, what else feels important to you to try to convey? Well, I like to convey the history of it. So my wife and daughter in particular, my son, not so much, but they claim I talk too much. And so, <laughs> and, and between dances and as I talk about a dance. So if I'm, uh, and I remember one person I heard you talking to who said, you know, she she struggled with finding stories. I, I am full of stories to the, the <laughs> point where I'm probably uh, a distraction. But I like people to know the context of, of the dance. And, you know, this was, I always start an evening with a circle dance which sometimes drives people crazy called 
Cabot School, which was written by Ted Sinella, and Cabot School is in Newton, Massachusetts. And so I'll talk a little bit about that. I might talk about Nelson and how the floor used to move a certain way. And, you know, I, I, and also this is Bob McQuillan, we're doing a tune of his, or this is, you know, whatever. So I, I bring in the stories. So I guess I try to have that perspective. And if I can get away with it, occasionally I'll teach something and I'll teach something like giving weight, like, and not in terms of swinging, but in other moves and stuff. Um, so I, I guess I do, you know, have some motivation in terms of a goal or something, but, uh, and when I write dances, you know, some composers have goals about that. I, I really don't. I just, I see a move that I think is interesting and I think, oh, well, I can play around with that and maybe come up with some other dance or something, but I'm not trying to do a dance that feels this way or that way. It's usually not the case. Are you still composing dances? Yes. Yeah, I am. I don't necessarily have a, anyone to try them on, but occasionally I will send them off to people. The last uh, uh, person who was very generous in that, uh, she hasn't really given me any feedback, was Lindsay Dono. <clears throat> and she was using, what is it called? Uh, the Pousset. She likes to use Poussettes. And so I had just written some dances with Poussettes in them because I like it too. And so uh, I gave those to her on that. But, uh, and uh, they were named Francistown and Harrisville. <laughs> nice so everything i all, all the 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 dances that are right i title after things and places and people that are important to me i guess i learned that from bob mcquillick on that yeah oh kid you know gene hubert was a uh i only met him once but, but he certainly influenced me in terms of repertoire early you know composer of dances and publishing dances which was very useful but gene could never make a decent title if it killed him and so i always wanted to say gene let me make the titles for you you write the dances and i'll do the titles <laughs> love it <laughs> gang, gang of four you know rotary circulator oh my god you know, <laughs> things like that and then the other composer that uh I always uh, admired was uh, uh, Dan Pearl. And for Dan, for most composers, we all write lots of dances and maybe one or two stick. And Dan has written so many ones that really stick. And I always thought that he probably had a board of people that would review all his dances and say, nope, Dan, Dan you can't release this one. You have to that's a bad one. Don't release that or something. Heavily but, uh, screened. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm sort of moving around, but uh, our discussion anyway. Oh, it's okay. Yeah. What What has calling been like recently? I mean, and recent can be, you know, a, a broad term. We're obviously at a kind of st still coming out of you know, a major interruption to all dancing, you know, the pandemic. Yeah. So I'm curious, kind of leading up to that and and up to the present, what are you noticing and what's keeping it fresh yeah. for you? 
That, well, the, the interesting thing is that uh, uh, my wife, Deborah Schultz, and I um, got together in 1985. We met at a dance, and she asked me the waltz. Isn't that great? Well, it's just yes. Life. And once we started, and, and together we started doing June Camp in 1986. And then when is we had- that, Where is June Camp? Uh, well, the, uh, we Lady of the Lake is on uh, on Coeur Lake. It's on the east side, and we run have run three camps, uh, which I started the first one, the fall camp. But then Deborah and I, with a, a committee of people, started uh, the June camp in 1986. And then when we had our first child, Louise, we started uh, a, a family camp in 1992. Um, when we had the family and then we really, Deborah started helping with the business too. We were just too busy to do a whole lot of stuff. So uh, I did the weekly dance from 1988 to 91 when Louise was born and then handed it off to Dave Smith. And he did a smart thing was to offer a callers workshop and a bunch of other people got into it. And so we had a rotation. And so before COVID, the weekly dance, um, was uh, being supported by eight different callers and eight different bands. And so right at the end, I was starting to get back into the rotation, which meant that we would, I would call maybe three or four times in a season on that from September through June. And that's about the only thing I was doing. And uh, also Deborah and I kind of retired from running Lady of the Lake about 15 years ago. And before that, you know, I call a little bit during that experience, but again, not doing a whole lot. And then we closed the business in 2019, right before COVID. And so I started calling a little bit and I joined the Folklore Society and I was always on the board of Lady of the Lake and sort of helping that way. So as a result, been sort of getting back into it and being aware of some of the issues that are going on. You know, the biggest one, is uh, the gender-free issues and safety and consent and all that stuff. And I've certainly been um, helped by my children, in particular Louise, who's a exquisite dancer and, and uh, uh, plays uh, violin as well. Uh, and our son, to a lesser degree, who's also a great dancer too. But uh, uh, so the, the most exciting thing for me is is sort of having to reorient how I call in in that context and how to think about it and sort of that process. Uh, 2000, I think 18 or 19, the, the very first real contra dance, English country dance series was started in Portland a year before I did mine. And so I would drive down to Portland and, and dance there. Uh, Craig Shin, and Edith Farrar and Christy Keevil was there uh, and some other people. So we had this reunion, um, I think 2018 or maybe 19. Uh, and we were invited, I was invited to come to this dance and it was a very odd kind of situation, but uh, we kind of called, but then there was this younger caller who 
before the dance started, really explain to everybody how you how you ask people to dance, how you do all this stuff. And I remember Edith and I and my wife sitting there going, you know, what the hell is this all about? And so it was just really for us, like, what's going on? And then in the course of the last three years, it was sort of like, oh, I get what's going on. I get if we want young people that come into our communities, which has always been an issue for me, I want young people to come in, then the the environment needs to be perceived as safe. And that's a broad sort of definition of that. And subsequently, I initiated among our eight or nine callers, the discussion about using gender-free terminology. Uh, fortunately, the Folklore Society has been pretty ahead of stuff. Uh, it's still, we're in transition, but I have been, starting in 2019, I started, you know, talking about, in, in when I start my Cabot School Circle Dance, I usually teach the swing. Now I'm saying to people, this is the expectation of how you hold somebody. So that it gives them a, a thing of, if someone isn't holding you that way, you can tell them this is how you want to be held. So I started that discussion. And then um, the callers, we talked and we all agreed about the issue of gender, gender free, but nobody could agree on what they wanted to use. So we're still in that transition. Um, I call, I haven't, because of COVID, haven't called much, but I finally call a dance this fall and I use Larks and Robins. And it, it was felt very natural. I was surprised actually, we had started, uh, reconfigured our, our family camp into a camp that was more oriented towards young people. And we were doing Larks and Robins and having lots of discussions. And Lindsay Dono was there and, and uh, Susan Michaels and other people. And it was like, this is no big deal, in my opinion. It was so easy to do. Uh, we do have a couple of callers trying to do positional calling, and that's very, very, very difficult. I think that's really challenging uh, to the point where they went down to one community and I think turned off the community to the point where they decided they're only doing, you know, ladies and gents. Um, but even the people who are doing ladies and gents are, are explaining the context of it, that it's not, that it's a marker as opposed to anything else. It's not gender related per se. But uh, so I think that's pretty exciting what's what's going on there. And me thinking about it, it, it was a, in some ways a big deal, but once I did it, it wasn't a big deal. Face the next, you balance below. Sight. Active couples go two by two. Turn along, that's what you do. Pass off the same old two. Contra corners, here you do. Just run the top, you balance, swing. With the next balance blow.
what else excites you about the future or what's on the horizon? Well, you know, the, I don't know if I'm going to answer your question or not, because I don't know if that's I have okay. <laughs> but on the other hand, um, for me, contradancing is a means to an end. For some people, it feels like contradancing is the end. Uh, you know, for them, they make a lot of decisions because it's sort of the end thing. Uh, but for me, contradancing has always been the means to the end, and the end is building community. And so uh, our, our Lady of the Lake is a brand that is so well recognized. People come to it and, and just say, everyone is so nice. Everyone is so inclusive. Everyone is this and that. And that's because we really laid the foundation, Deborah and I, about community and, and, and programmed in a certain way that, that did that. Um, so I worry about community. I, I worry about dance in, in the context of community and whether, um, you know, I mean, we're, we're sort of at the, a situation, I don't know if it's still happening or not, where communities are big enough so that there's a group of people dancing that are doing gender free and there's a group that's not doing gender free. And um, uh, that, that ultimately, I mean, I guess if you pull it off, that's fine. You've got your own kind of community, but it's a different kind of community than in my mind. And so that is, for me, the challenge is how, how you create an intergenerational community of dancers. Uh, and Lady of the Lake is, is, is grappling with that right now. We, we in our June camp, have um, you know, a lot of older dancers uh, that, that come. And as they get older, then they can't come. And so... And for another reason, we we have to to make adjustments to that and try to figure out how best to uh, attract a younger audience. And I'm not talking twenty to thirty year olds. I'm talking, you know, even thirty five to fifty year olds. You now that it's it's hard, obviously, for people to get away for a whole week anymore and, and dance. And some people don't have the money and some people don't have the time. So there's, there's a lot of things that we are, uh, we are working on. We, uh, family camp sort of fell apart uh, right before COVID. And so we reimagined it with a intergenerational camp called Dance Some More. And that went for two years and we made the decision to, to stop it this, this year, but we're taking a lot of what we learned in, in trying to apply it to June camp uh, as a way to, you know, continue it for a lot longer. So we're very excited about that. And that's, I guess, where uh, our focus is right now. My wife and I is trying to figure out how that works. And we have a really vibrant committee that's working and we're trying to attract younger people as well to help us with that in the direction. And, there's some great, what, what really makes me believe it's going to work is that we have a lot of young musicians and young callers coming up. And so usually their friends follow them. And so there's, there are young people out there dancing as well. I just, 
I just think, you know, this whole issue of what community is and how different groups interpret it is really critical and whether they're willing to, to be open to working their community within the context of another community as well. And that's right. probably reflective of the whole world in, in many ways too. Yeah, I think about that a lot as our, our dance communities as kind of microcosms and and uh, can be really great spaces to work on some of those those much bigger challenges of humanity. Yeah, it really is. It's very challenging though, but it's uh, uh, I I think we have a chance. I think dancing is is magical, and it it if you're willing to uh, dance with someone you don't know, then things can happen. Good things can happen, I think, you know, and, and you, and you put it within the context that you're dancing, not just with a partner, but you're dancing with a whole community of people, uh, who are very supportive and joyous and having fun. It's just, you know, it allows us to be optimistic. Yeah. Yeah. Well, before I get to my three closing questions, I, I have to return and ask, do you still have all those recordings that you made? And yes. it sounds like you continue to make and and uh, are well, they the thing, being and archived? Is, with, any, with any caller, I'd recommend this. It wasn't intentional and I didn't record myself because I wanted to hear myself. But once I started recording myself, especially early on, I was like, I do not like the way I sound. And and again, thinking about Duke Miller and Ted Sonella in particular, um, I realized that you can control your voice. And especially you can imagine in, in my situation where it wasn't unusual for the whole contra line to just blow up, you know, to take the the the, the alarm and stress out of my voice was something I worked really hard at. So I would certainly recommend to any caller that they uh, they record themselves just to say, oh, because you can really use your voice to help the dance along in a lot of different ways and stuff. So, um, but the the recordings, yes. Uh, the recordings that I did of uh, New during New England, I sent to UNH. Uh, University of New Hampshire, and they were very interested in that as well. And that included also Rod, um, Frank Farrell started uh, uh, the Centrum uh, uh, stuff going on, and this includes the, uh, the uh, uh, Fiddle Tunes Week. And then also for the first about 10 years, there was a thing called the uh, International Folk Dance and Music Week, which was in August. And what was brilliant about that was that he would bring in three different styles of dance, but also along with it, live music. So he would do contra dancing, he would do Balkan with Dick Crumb, but then with this great Balkan band that was just wild. And then uh, an Irish band or a uh, 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 Cape Breton group or something like that, you know, just fabulous stuff. But he, he brought... Uh, Ralph Page out, and this was in 1980, uh, along with Rodney and Randy 
And then Todd came out and I set up a little tour ahead of time. And then the next year he hired Todd with Rand with Rodney and um Andy Davis came out to play instead of Randy. And so, and then I think they came out even one more year. And then he brought out the foregone conclusions after that. Uh, but the the result was is that uh, uh we just had this really great music and I recorded it all. So that went back to UNH as well, a full week of that. And also McQuillan uh, came out for uh, 1985 for fiddle tunes. And Frank called me and so I'd like to have you call because they had a dance program. And I'm bringing out Bob McQuillan. And I said, well, you're bringing out April Limber. And he said, oh, I, I can't afford to. And I said, you got to have April out because there's no point bringing you know, Bob out because April knows all the tunes on that. So <laughs> I for, I forgave my tui- my fee. I said, look, I'll do it for free if you'll bring April out. So April came out. So I recorded all that stuff about Bob doing, talking about how he wrote music and all kinds of stuff. So all that stuff went, yeah, to UNH was really great. I was really thrilled that they were willing to take it. So I'm and I have lots to hear it. You're just sitting here. So yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Great. Yeah. Well, uh, my first question, you know, which you've, you've spoken to the larger theme of, of caller as, um, as historian, as archivist, as kind of keepers of a, of a lot of aspects of kind of dance history, culture, but in particular dance notation, just by the nature of what we do, you you have to have some system of recording and keeping your dance collection. And so I'm wondering how, what, what you do, do you have cards? Have you moved to a database? What's your, your notation system? Oh, I can't do database. Oh my God. I understand people doing that, but I just can't do it. I can't, I can't read a book on uh, an iPad or whatever. I can't do it, but I understand it. The way I call a dance, at least when I used to do it a lot, I would have a bunch of cards that I always used and I would just spread it out in front of me. I would pick two dances I knew I was going to call and then I'd have all this stuff out here and it was just sort of an organic process that I would pick and choose dances based on what was going out on the floor and, and the music and and that kind of thing. Uh, so I've always used cards and my cards, some of them are 40 years old and some are new because I just written new dances on that. I was always probably because I was a historian, I was really, really intent on making sure I got the name of the dance correctly and who wrote it. And uh, oftentimes I would uh, early on, I, and, and callers don't like to do this, but I would uh, hire these great callers for Leia Lake and I would ask them if I could look at their calling box so I would get dances that way but also they'd look through mine and and help me and say oh this is written by such and such the the person who never did that that was so funny was uh um you just mentioned him uh and he had his own uh square dance hall and his singing squares and stuff and he was oh Ralph Sweet Ralph Sweet. So we brought Ralph Sweet out. I was looking through his box and I there were a couple dances that had these titles on. I said, Ralph, this is my dance and this is called such and such. He'd laugh and he'd say, oh yeah, I just, I collect dances but I never remembered the names of them so I just put names on them. 
that's the antithesis of what I do. You know, it's just like, no, I want to make really sure that I that I have that correct. So yes, so that's what I do. I still have my box. Uh, I have multiple boxes because I move things around and stuff. So that's what I do. Nice. I I am also still uh still really rely on being able to just physically spread my cards out and move them around and yeah i, I don't do think that. i'll move away from most many of the younger dancers like Lindsay, you know has the thing and i was like wow good for you so yeah yeah it makes a lot of sense and i i i think i got halfway through trying to to create some kind of digital backup of my cards i mean that story of jack perrin's binder yeah. is just totally heartbreaking and terrifying thinking if we have a fire the first i gotta make sure my calling box is gone with me <laughs> yeah um so and when you're getting ready for a gig do you have any any pre-gig rituals or things that that you do to get ready and and anything that you do to kind of wind down afterwards uh you know, to be honest with you, I do so little calling anymore, but I, I, I'm much more intent right now of really looking at my dances because I haven't looked at them for a long time. And again, I go through that ritual of saying, okay, I'm going to do these two for sure. I'm going to start with these. And then I've got, because especially in, in, in a community like Spokane, you can make the assumption that the level is six or seven and then it's really two you know or else a bunch of people would come in and dropped it to two and so you've got to be ready to adjust pretty quickly so um i i will have that in mind i'll have okay here's here's my go-to ones and usually those uh are ones that are pretty simple but they have an interesting move in them or something so that's just a little different so it doesn't all feel the same uh sometimes i will have written a, a new dance and i want to try it and so that is out there as well but again my role as caller versus dancer versus composer is that if people aren't able to do it then i'm not going to try to make it work so you know that's that's sort of the case so I guess that's how, and then after a dance, I'm usually pretty excited and my wife is still up. And so we'll talk about it. She'll say, how's it go? And that kind of thing. And then uh, the try debrief. to go. Yeah. A debrief. Yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> nice. I don't like to call it the postmortem. That's. <laughs> um. And then my last curiosity that I, something I've been asking everyone in these interviews is if you know, are you an introvert or an extrovert? <laughs> well, that's a great question because um, I have found, put myself in positions where uh, I'm in, in leadership of some, some form. I ran for you know, president of the school, I, I high school, and I was dorm president in college, and and uh, in those functions, and then I organized actually folk concerts in college, and then then I became a teacher, and you know, you know really quickly if you want to teach or not when you stand in front of a bunch of people and, and 
do it. So uh, you might be surprised to know that I, at times I felt like I was a fairly shy person, but uh, these sort of situations allowed me the confidence and sort of the protection, I guess, <laughs> to be what sound like I'm an extrovert. And, uh, but I'm very comfortable talking to people. You know, I was a retailer for 40 years. So I learned how to talk to people and engage in, in that kind of thing. So um, I guess I am sort of, I, people would say I'm an extrovert. So at times I can be somewhat shy, but uh, I also am able to step into the fray when called yeah. upon. Yeah. Yeah. Step into step into those different roles. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Nice. Well, Penn, it's been so great getting to actually have a nice long chat, and uh, and it's wonderful to hear, you know, your your memories and stories, and and hear about dancing in the Northwest. And um, I I hope that you continue to make your contributions and and keep that community spirit alive out there. It sounds like there's still a lot of great things going on and I hope I make it out there sometime soon too. I've, I have called at lady of the lake one time. I can't, it was quite a while back and kind of, I feel like one of the, the earlier dance weekend, like dance weeks that I got to call. Um, so were it's you, been a while. Uh, I'd love to come back. <laughs> you on staff or were you? I was uh, on staff. So I would have to go back in my calendar to find out when it when it was. But um you know, you have to remember when you say it was a while back, you're pretty young. So I started <laughs> it 40 years ago. Right. So. This could be probably within I would say it's gotta be like maybe eight or nine years ago. So I was not obviously programming so i would not have known that so i'm glad i was like you you sort of got the sense of what the camp is about yeah wonderful beautiful location beautiful dancers the so, best thing about lady of the lake is there's no bugs and no humidity yeah it's, a, it's <laughs> for us new englanders you know that's <laughs> pretty dreamy i know it is but thank you what for what you're doing you know as as someone who uh as i say had once could have been a a folklorist i really appreciate what you're doing to to uh, sort of preserve this uh, but to ask questions that are not only you know of the past but also of the present and moving forward so uh, thank you for the opportunity my pleasure yeah thanks for your time and i've always feel very lucky that i get to have these conversations so <laughs> that's great thank you Thanks so much to Penn for talking with me. You can check out the show notes for today's episode at cdss.org podcasts. This project is supported by CDSS, the Country Dance and Song Society, and is produced by Ben Williams and me, Mary Wesley. Thanks to Great Meadow Music for the use of tunes from the album Old New England by Bob McQuillan, Jane Orzachowski, and Deanna Stiles. Visit cdss.org slash podcasts for more info. Happy dancing. <laughs>